Well, a few weeks ago on Sunday nights, we began studying the Parables of Jesus series we've kind of called Stories That Jesus Told. And we begin in Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that parable of the wise and foolish builders. And how that Jesus said that we have our foundation is firm if we hear what he says and put it into practice, not just hear it only. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the sower. As uh, the sower went around and we talked about the four different type of soil that the, uh, that the seed uh, fell on and the different implications of that. Now tonight, we're going to talk about one of the more difficult parables to interpret. And that is the parable of the weeds and or the wheat and the weeds. Now I got to tell you, I've taught the parable several times in different, you know, whether it's youth or adults or whatever. But I've never taught this parable. I've always shied away from this parable. And the reason I've shied away from this parable is because I'm not sure what this parable means. It's a little difficult for me. In fact, uh, John Seeley was in the library this week and I uh, went in and he said, "Uh oh, this must be serious. Tim's in the library. I said, yeah, I need to see if there's any books on on the parables because I'm not too sure about about this one. And so I'm in there and I find this book on the parables and, and I find where it had, you know, a little section on the parable of the weeds. And this is the way it started. This is a perplexing parable. <laughs> well, this guy doesn't know any more than I do. And so I thought, well, you know what? Why don't I just skip it? You know, we can go to the prodigal son. We can go to the good Samaritan. We can go to, there's all kinds of parables we can do. None of y'all, if I didn't bring it up and we got to the end of our series on the parables, probably not a single one of you would come up to me and say, why didn't you do one on the parable of the weeds? Now, let me take that back. There's probably one or two of you. But anyway, nobody would have really known the difference. But I wanted to do this because I really wanted to study this parable. And see if I could come to some conclusion as to exactly what Jesus means here. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Now, I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one who struggled with the meaning of this parable. Look at verse 36. 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, 
explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Go ahead, uh, Brett. Now, one thing that did seem to be a consensus in all the reading that I read on the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or if you're using King James, it may say tares, uh, is that in the Middle East, that there was a plant called the bearded darnel. I don't know if we have that here or not. I'm looking at Donna. She's the farmer. She Okay, she doesn't know. But anyway, what, what all the commentators say about the bearded darnel is that while it is growing, it looks exactly like wheat. In other words, from the time that it sprouts, you can't tell the difference between the darnel and the wheat. As the stalk begins to grow and the leaves even begin to form out from the stalk, you can't tell the difference. It looks exactly the same. You can't tell the difference until the heads begin to sprout. Once the heads begin to sprout, you can tell the difference between the wheat and the darnel. And we know if you see up there, I guess that would be on the uh, left. Is that the left? The wheat? Is that on the left? Yes. The wheat is on the left. And that is what comes out of the, the wheat plant. I remember when I was a kid going to our farm that uh, the person that uh, leased it out, he grew wheat. And I used to love walking through the wheat field because I would take a head and I would go like that and blow it away. And then the, the wheat would be left and you could eat it. That was pretty cool. You better not eat what comes out of the Darnell. It's a black seed and it's poisonous to eat. And so obviously at some point in time, there was going to have to be a separation of the wheat and the Darnell because you wouldn't want to mix together because your wheat would be useless. And in fact, it would actually be dangerous. So this is, seems to be what Jesus is talking about, the, the symbolism that Jesus is using. And the idea is, is that because you cannot tell the difference between the darnel and the wheat early on. If you could tell the difference early on, before they had begun to mature, then you could pull the weeds out. But by the time you can tell the difference, the root systems then have begun to join together. And if you pull one out, you're going to pull the other one out. And so the, the workers in the field said, you know, do you want us to go pull the weed out or pull the weeds out? And the farmer said, no, don't do that, because when you're doing that, you're going to be pulling out the, the weed as well. Just let them grow together side by side. Now, our understanding of this parable depends on what the context is. And there's a little disagreement on that. Is Jesus talking about the church, the kingdom, 
the body. The, and bad seed that is sown in it. In other words, is he talking about within the church? Bad seed that is grown within the church. Or is he talking in context about the world in general? And the struggle between good and evil within the world. Now many believe that he is talking about the difference between true Christians and false Christians within the church. Now, if he is talking about the church and the bad seed that is sown in it, then the admonition to let the wheat grow, the weed, let the weed grow, to me at least, becomes problematic. When laid side by side with other of Jesus' teachings and teachings found in the elsewhere within the New Testament that teach us that within the church, there is a weeding out process. In Matthew chapter 18, just a few chapters over, you remember that Jesus talks and he says, if your brother sins against you, you go to him. And if he doesn't listen, then you take two or three others. And if he still won't listen, then you take it to the church. And then he says, if he refuses to listen, Even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You see, Jesus seems to be saying that within the church, there is a weeding out process. There is a time for that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're pretty familiar with that that situation. You remember that in the church in Corinth, there was this man who was living with his father's wife. Now we suspect that that would be his stepmother because it would be even worse if it was not. But we believe that that is what he is living with his stepmother in you know, the context of, of a relationship. And Paul rebukes the church there at Corinth. And in fact, in Act, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2, Paul says, Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? And then he goes on in verse 9 and he says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, which is what this man was. But then Paul qualifies that. I've written you before not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral, or greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother who is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or a swindler, or a drunkard, or a slanderer. With such a man, do not even eat. Whoa. That's pretty serious. Paul says this man is conducting himself in such a way that you need to remove him from your fellowship. And if he will not straighten up, if he doesn't realize the seriousness of what he's doing, don't even eat with him. Don't have any association with him whatsoever until he realizes what he has done. Again, in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3. 
In verse 6, Paul writes, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. And then in verse 14, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is making some personal remarks and he talks about in verse 14. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. You too, talking to Timothy, you too should be on guard against him. Because he strongly opposes our message. And then in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped. I didn't even know warped was in the Bible, to tell you the truth. Warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And then in Revelation, you remember in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, this is where uh, Jesus speaks to the seven churches of Asia. And he talks to them about, you know, uh, their standing and where they need to, what they need to work on and things that may be going right, things that were going wrong. We remember the church in Laodicea it was neither hot nor cold, but it was lukewarm. Okay, we remember all of that. Well, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, talking to the church at Pergamum, he writes, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, he says. And then also in Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, talking to the church in Thyatira, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. The clear implication in Revelation to me is they should have done something about those people who were false teaching, who were sexually immoral, things like that. Jesus comes along and says, why are you putting up with those? Why do you still have them there? You need to do something about those folks. And so there are other warnings as well about false teachers and staying clear of them and things like that. Clearly, we are taught to challenge one another, to hold each other accountable for our teachings and our action, and to avoid those who teach contrary to God's word. So in light of all these teachings, the idea that Jesus, and I use the word laissez-faire, the idea of just let the weeds grow with the wheat and there won't be any problem and I'll take care of it all in the end. The idea of that applying to the church seems to me to contradict these other teachings. Now, 
again, with the parables, it's hard. You, you don't want to make a rigid comparison, per se. But the reason that Paul told the church in Corinth specifically to get rid of the man who was living with his father's wife, number one, it was having a horrible It was creating a horrible reputation for the church. He said, you got pagans out there who are going, you people are supposed to be Christians. You people are supposed to be righteous. You people are supposed to be moral. Even we don't do that. And it was a horrible reflection on the church. Also remember that Paul uses this just right after that. He talked about a little yeast leavening the whole Lump of dough. It was causing a problem within the church. It was a horrible example to other Christians. And so the idea was is that there, there was damage being done within the church. Right then and there. In the parable, there was no damage being done to the wheat. Uh, you could argue that maybe the weed was taking some of the nutrients or whatever. But, but the wheat was having no damage, was creating no damage on the wheat itself. The weeds were having no damage on the wheat itself. Which is different than what we see, I think, in what Jesus is talking about the church. Now, I'll grant you that some would say that Jesus is talking about the church, but he's not talking about... Those who are outwardly and overtly teaching or acting against God's will. Obviously, a man living with his father's wife, that's against God's will. Obviously, whoever this Jezebel was in Revelation or these Nicolaitans, whatever they, whoever they were, this Alexander that Paul talked about, whoever these people, they were, they were teaching things contrary to God's will and God's word. And they would say, well, that's not, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about us as humans trying to look into each other's hearts and decide who's a real Christian and who's not a real Christian. Not by the evidence of certain things we see on the outside, but just by our own opinions and whatever uh, from, you know, well, I just, you know, Bryson gets up here, he leads singing, he thinks he's all that. But you know what? Bryson's not really a Christian. He's a false Christian. He's a fake Christian. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, and, and so maybe some would say that's what Jesus is talking about. That we don't have the insight to make that distinction. Well, again, a little problem with that in that once the head began to grow... The distinction was obvious between the wheat and the tares, between the wheat and the weeds. It was obvious. That's why the, the workers, the, the workers said, you know, you want us to separate them. We know which is which now. And Jesus still said no. So I don't personally, and I'm not a hundred percent on this, 62%, 62%. I don't think Jesus is talking about the church, the kingdom, the body of Christ in this parable. 
Another reason I don't believe that is because Jesus specifically told us what the field is. In verse, did you see that in verse 37? The the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The field is the world. He doesn't say the field is the kingdom. He doesn't say the field is the church. He says the field is the world. And so in light of that interpretation, what are some things we can learn? Well, first of all, we can learn that the world is the world. I'm getting good at that. Remember this morning? Point number one, God is God. Okay? So this tonight, point number one, the world is the world. Just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, we don't judge the world. When talking about the man living with his father's wife, he said, I'm not talking about judging the world. We don't judge the world. We judge each other. We judge the church. We judge one another based on God's word and God's will. And he said, I didn't say don't associate with the bad people of the world. In fact, if you're not going to associate with the bad people of the world, you're going to have to get out of the world. You're going to have to do like some of the, the, the monks or, or, you know, uh, aesthetics who, who, who would, who would, you know, build some Shangri-La somewhere and keep everybody out like no evil's going to get in. If there's one of us there, evil's going to get in. Okay. I'm just telling you. All right. He said, I'm not telling you don't associate with the bad people of the world because We've got to associate with them. If we're going to bring in the message of Christ, we've got to associate with them. Now, he does go on a little later and says, don't be unequally yoked with them. Don't get yourself in a situation where they have more influence on you for bad than you do to them for good. But the world is an evil, wicked place. We cannot expect the world to hold the same values and morals as we do. We might like it. We might prefer it. But we cannot expect it. Because the evil one is in the world. The evil one is sowing seed. The evil one is corrupting man's hearts and minds. The world is not the kingdom the church is. And Satan has a stranglehold on the world. Evil abounds. That's why I believe Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is not against people. Our fight is against Satan. And now, his work may manifest itself through people. I understand that. But our fight is not really with people. Our fight is against Satan and the devil. Or the devil. Our goal as Christians. Now hear me out. Our goal as Christians is not to make the world a more moral place. Our work, our goal, our job as Christians is not to make the world a more moral place but to share the gospel message with the world. You see the difference? 
Now, if we share the gospel message with the world and we're able to produce a bounty, you know, like we saw in the, uh, the parable of the sower, is the world going to be a moral place? Absolutely. But we don't make the world a more moral place by trying to make the world a more moral place. Yeah, I said that like a minute. That was right. We make the world a more moral place by teaching people the message of Jesus Christ. By helping them to understand that God has sent his son to die for them. And that there is hope of a better place. Yes, a part of that is explaining sin and its consequences. You you can't get around that. You want to teach an unchurched person, an unreligious person, somebody who doesn't know anything about God, you want to teach them the gospel message, you've got to teach them about sin. Because if you don't teach them about sin, there's no reason to be saved, right? You got to teach them about sin. Well, what is sin? Sin is breaking God's commandments. Well, what are some of God's commandments? Well, we can share with them some of God's commandments. And so, yeah, that's a part of teaching the gospel. But we share that with the motive of bringing repentance and salvation, not a higher moral environment. Our motive is to save souls, not make this world a better place. Does that make sense? Now, when we save souls, the world will be a better place. But the question, can we really make the world a better place if we don't save souls? We may clean it up a little bit. You know, we may be able to get some of the dirt off, but it's not really going to fix anything without the gospel message of Jesus. Let me, I'm going to share with you when this really struck home with me. This was probably 25 years ago. And it was the beginning of the whole idea that the public schools were going to start teaching essentially safe sex. And then there was this whole thing where they were going to begin, they were going to begin to hand out condoms in the school. And I was horrified. I couldn't believe it. What is this country coming to? What is our, you know, our public school system is just going down the tubes. This is just so awful. It's terrible. And I remember having a conversation with an administrator who was a member of the church. And this administrator, and and I didn't go to them to complain about this. It just kind of came up in natural conversation. So it's not like, you know, I busted in the door and, you know, it just kind of came up in natural conversation. And he said, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not dealing with Christians. I'm not dealing with teenagers who hold God's word as the guide for their life. I'm not dealing with even parents who have taught their children that the Bible is God's standard, that the Bible is... I'm teaching kids now, or we have kids now, the majority of these kids in my school now, their morality is based on society. And society says that sexual relations before marriage is no big deal. And if from a worldly view, I can prevent unwanted pregnancies. 
I can prevent abortions. I can prevent single mothers. I can prevent, you know, if, if doing that helps that, then I think that's my responsibility as an administrator in the public school system. I wasn't convinced. But I went home and I thought about it. I'm convinced. I think he's right. That's the world's view. And they're dealing with the world. Now, as a Christian parent, that shouldn't be what we're teaching our children. In the church, that should not be what we're teaching our children. In the church, we teach our children that sex is something to be saved for marriage. Hebrews says, you know, marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, not just after marriage, but before marriage. That's what we teach our children. We teach our children what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians where he says, it's not so much that we don't do that because of all these different things. We don't do that because we have been called to a higher standard. We are different. And I think what we need to understand is there is a difference in the way we deal with the world and there's difference in the way we deal with one another. There's a difference in what I, now, I've come to this conclusion now. There's a difference from what I expect from the world and society and what I expect from us. And that difference is getting bigger and bigger as time goes on. So one of the things we need to realize is the world is the world. And the world's going to act like the world. Second thing that we can learn from this parable, perhaps, is that being good isn't good enough. For much of the growing season, the wheat and the darnel looked exactly the same. However, in the end, there was a difference. This is hard for us in our society today because our society condemns us for being so narrow-minded about our view of salvation. Just being moral, just living a good, decent life, just mimicking God's will is not enough to save Someone. If that were true, if it were true, that you know what? There's these good people out here. They're not Christians. They don't care about the Bible. They don't care about God, but they're good people. My boss at work, my co worker, my friend, my neighbor, they're good people. But they really don't believe in God or they don't, you know, but they don't kill anybody. You know, they don't do all these horrible things. They're good people. If being good was good enough. Then the sacrifice Jesus made was totally in vain. Was totally useless. Was without purpose. If we could be good enough. To be saved. Then what was the point. Of Jesus coming. 
The point is, and Paul deals with this throughout Romans especially, the point is we can't be good enough. Because the wages of sin is death. Not the wages of all of our sins added together. But the wages of one sin is death. If you break one part of the law, you break the whole law. And the wages of sin is death. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius was a good man. He wasn't a Jew. But everybody respected him. Jews and Gentiles alike. He gave to the poor. He even prayed to God. And by that, I think the Hebrew God. Somewhere, somebody taught him about the Hebrew God. He was a good person. And yet God said, Peter, you have to go teach Cornelius. You've got to show him what he needs to do in order to be saved. He's a good person, but he's not saved. You see, that's, that's the difference. It's not about being good. It's about being saved. And there's a difference between being good and being saved. We do not weigh the good and the bad in our lives to see which tips the scale. You know? I think most of us would settle for that, wouldn't we? Most of us. There's a few of you, I'm not sure. But most of us. If we could just say, you know, let me, let me just put all my good deeds on one side, all my bad deeds on the other side. Most of us would feel comfortable with that, wouldn't we? Ah, okay. I mean, I've done some bad things, but I've never done anything, you know, and, and, you know, I've lived a good life, you know, and, and, woo, I like that. Paul says, ah, that won't work. Because just one sin on the other side weighs it all down. It's not about being good. It's about being saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Not I am a way. Not I am the best way. But I am the way, the truth and the life. Thirdly, real quickly, what we get from this is that there will be a judgment. In the end, God will judge. He will separate the sheep and the goat and the wheats and the weed. It's a sad reality. But there is a heaven. We believe in that, don't we? If we believe in heaven, we have to believe in hell. They're taught virtually equally in scripture. Cannot have one without the other. Everlasting life and eternal punishment. Just as the grace and mercy of God is real, so is his justice and judgment. We saw it in the days of Noah. We saw it in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw it in the days of Israel. We saw it in the days of Judah. And one day we will see it again. The ultimate judgment. So, hope you got something. Out of the parable of the weeds. I got a lot. Out of studying the parable of the weeds. And just a reminder. The world is against us. 
and a reminder that we want to be a part of the wheat crop when judgment comes. If we can help or encourage you in any way tonight, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas. 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.